Good day, nerds. This is Megan coming at you with another Cantina conversation on the Nerd Cantina Show podcast. Today, we're talking with Chris Calvin. We're talking about her book, Under a Broken Sky, which is a second installment of her Emma Lawson and Alibi Morning Sun mystery thriller series. The first one is called All That Fall. Both books are available now. Um, You do not have to read All That Fall in order to follow along with Under a Broken Sky, but I think it would help kind of, um, you know, just get some more insight into the characters. Either way, this was a fun book, um, a really cool book, really engaging. And also, I really enjoyed talking with Chris and learning about her experiences growing up and how that kind of influenced the kind of stories that she wants to tell and how she tells those stories. But I'll let you guys go ahead and get started and, and see what I mean. So here you go. Okay, we are here with Chris Calvin today um, talking about the second book in her Emma Lawson series, Under a Broken Sky, which is available now. The first one is All That Fall. But I was happy to learn that you do a really great job of, you know, writing it so that the reader can jump in without having read the first one. So I was very grateful for that because, it, it, you know, because a lot of authors do that. And so I'm just like, OK, because I usually like to 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 keep up. <laughs> so as long as I didn't have to cram a book in there, it was very good for me. So thank you, Chris, um, you know, for for joining us today. And I, you know, I, I really did like um, Emma as a character and I'm a, I'm a sucker for like the suspense mystery thriller genre. So um, I'm excited to get to chat with you about it today. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for having me here. I appreciate Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. So um, how about to get started? We, can you give like a little summary synopsis to kind of, um, you know, so that listeners can follow along with the conversation. So about um, myself and my writing process or about the book, which what about the book? Yeah, we'll, we'll get to your book. we'll get to all that's that. Other no, that's stuff. Fine. <laughs> uh, so the there are two main characters, really. So there's Emma Lawson and she's an ethics investigator in the capital of California. And I don't know if there is such a position. I don't think it has that title, but there is an ethics commission and there are uh, all kinds of investigations into things that are being done in the public sector to make sure that taxpayers' money is being spent properly. So it's somewhat grounded in reality. I live uh, near Sacramento and she's the youngest in this book. She's the youngest lead ethics investigator that California has ever had at age 33. Uh, And the other main character is named Detective alibi morning sun and there's a story behind the name that we can get to or not and he uh investigates homicides so he tracks bodies and she follows corruption in government and their two investigations overlap their um lives overlap in a way that may or may not end up being romantic and there's also Uh, Another very important character, which is that Emma has a close, close friend because Emma has limited family and has made her family out of out of this friend, really, and this friend's son. So Kate and Luke are also very important. And the story carries through these two investigations that overlap and eventually have very, very high stakes uh, for Emma's life and and safety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's kind of like, yeah, we can also well, we want to do be a little bit spoiler free and we'll see if we we get into alibi's background because i think it was just you know his his very unique name and uh, from other reviews that i've read people like love it i was kind of like wait what like (laughs) but he grew on me i still like him so (laughs) and you know i don't um 
So I don't outline. And I also, uh, when I write, it's like seeing a movie. So the characters, and it sounds ridiculous. I mean, if someone else told me this, I'd go, yeah, right. But, you know, I, <laughs> I just see the things happening and I try to write them down. And so Alibi Morning Sun came as Alibi Morning Sun. And it, you know, at first I just, it didn't make a lot of sense to me either. But then there was a backstory that sort of grew out of that, as you said, and, and that I accepted and you accepted. Yeah. I mean, I can, I do revisions and I can make changes after I've seen this sort of film of a scene. Yeah. Um, but yes, it's, it's a very unusual thing. Yeah. And it seemed to kind of fit, I'm sure, after a while of like developing him and he just, he, that just stuck. And I think it's okay. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that essentially the last name, at least, was probably just an alias that his father made up. We don't learn a lot about his father, but his father had a criminal background. And in the pre-internet days, probably thought by calling himself Morning Sun, and maybe it sounded Native American, although he was not, that he could sort of slip through the cracks and, and not be caught for various things. And in the same way, Alibi's name came because his birth was then his father's alibi for a murder charge. And so Alibi Morning Sun fits because it's a it's a ridiculous name because it's not a real name. Yeah. Um, although it's his name that he has to live with. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, um, I think it was when he was like ordering his coffee, he just went by Al and I'm like, Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we would all do. Right. You get tired. Yeah. Of my name's Al by them saying, you know, is that a joke? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, I love that. So um, yeah. So let's uh, get into your background. Cause I know you've got like a, a really solid professional career outside of writing. And so go over like your background and maybe what led up to um, Emma and Alibi's stories. So I, I'm going to go back a little farther, although I'll jump forward really fast. Sure. <laughs> say that I am not one of those people who always wanted to be a writer. I didn't keep diaries or journals or daydream. And most authors I meet had some idea very young that they enjoyed being creative and writing stories. Um, I did not. And <laughs> I um, did not feel safe in my own home as a child. I was not safe. And I'm not unique in that. Um, unfortunately, there are a lot of people like that. Mm. But for me, my sanctuary ended up being the public library because it was close enough to walk and nobody was monitoring me. And so I went and sort of, you know, learned to read a lot myself and wanted to read every book in the children's section. I started with the Z's because that was the lowest shelf. I never got there, but that was my safe place. Adults were kind to me. And I also could read and escape into books because mostly for little kids, which is what I was, you know, there's happy endings for the most part. Mm -hmm. Kids are all safe. And so I, I continued then reading with no intent of ever, it never occurred to me that I would write anything creative. In fact, because I had a whole lot of scary stuff in my head, the last thing I wanted to do was give my imagination free reign. So I wanted to be very analytical. And I also um, just wanted to be good. I, I wanted to behave myself so that nothing bad would ever happen to me again when I left home. So I wanted to get all A's in school. And I worked very, very hard. And I went to Stanford as an undergraduate. I went to UC Berkeley um, in economics as a graduate student. And I learned essentially nothing because I was studying out of fear. I just wanted to please the professors. I wanted to know what the right answer was. I needed to get the grade. Worst possible way to do college ever. But of course, <laughs> I didn't know that. I just wanted the pats on the head and you're good and nothing bad will happen to you. 
Same thing with my personal life. I thought I'm going to get married and have kids and keep them safe and they will never have happened to them or happen to me. And instead, I got married really young and I had two kids right away and I got divorced. And then just for, you know, whatever, had another kid out of wedlock. And so it just like had chaos in my home while still saying, but I'm being really good. I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm raising these three kids gently and I'm working hard. And so I, I took the training that I had and it became eventually I got promoted within, within an organization. So I became the CEO of the American Academy of Pediatrics in California. So I worked for pediatricians. I'm not a pediatrician. I'm a policy person. And it's a big title, but I had very little staff, although we did a bunch of contracting, which gave me more staff. And so we did advocacy on behalf of children in the state of California on all kinds of programs, um, whether it was injury prevention or, um, you know, healthcare and all, all kinds of issues. And so I, that was my that was my more than full-time gig because I had these kids I was raising on my own. And then I was working probably 80 hours a week and I was still reading because mm-hmm. that was my joy and reading. I probably read two or three fiction books a week. Yeah, that's and a lot. <laughs> I could, you know, stand in line, even at the gas station, if I was doing my own gas and do a, read a couple more pages, reading all the time um, and mostly mysteries and thrillers. But the problem I was having was I love that rush of an adventure and danger and then the main people of the kids, at least, are okay. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to find in crime fiction. There's an awful lot of pedophilia and very dark plots about kids. And we found the four murdered girls. And, you know, I'll start books not being quite sure what they're about and then realize I personally can't do that. I think there's a place for those dark books. And, in fact, I think people who were raised in safe homes, for yeah. them, it's like riding a roller coaster. Never happened to them. Never going to happen to them. Right. Crazy stuff. For me, I knew terror and I, I don't want anything to do with it in my off time. So mm. I got my own idea for a story and I, you know, just couldn't shake it. I wasn't, again, wasn't thinking of writing to publish or writing, but so I got up at four in the morning before my kid got up and, you know, was just for myself thinking I can make a story where kids don't get hurt, but it's suspenseful and it's exciting. And so that's the genesis of me being a writer is I just thought, I'm just, I have to get this out of my head because I've now read a thousand mysteries and thrillers and I have my own and I'm just going to do it. But then when I finished it, it only took me about three months. I thought, wow, this is really good and really clever. And I was completely wrong because I gave it to a developmental editor who said, (laughs) this is terrible. And I was so shocked because I spent my whole life trying to be good and good at things. And and I said, what? How is it? And and the editor said, look, you, you know, you write testimony that goes before the governor. You write all kinds of stuff that's factual. So your mystery thriller is essentially you just telling us what's going to happen really clearly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. your characters only see stuff. They never touch, they never smell, they never hear. So she said, go away and take your clear <laughs> writing style and learn how to make it fiction. So I went to a bunch of conferences, like you might've heard of BoucherCon or Killer Nashville or Left Coast Crime, where I just soaked up stuff because that's what I knew I was good at. I could learn to try to be good. <laughs> and so I just listened to everybody and I put a jasmine candle on the fireplace because it smelled like that. You know, I was just like, yeah messing around trying to fix get, it get in the zone yeah and it took me a year or two and that was the first book that was published by a hybrid publisher um in 2015 and so I was already in my mid-50s when I wrote my first book and it won best first novel um nationally in the silver Falchions, best female PI sleuth and so I was so 
completely stunned. <laughs> but besides that, I thought this is really fun. I get it. There's yeah. two pieces to it. There's a creative part and then there's a try to be good at a part. So that's what led me to, to write. And then the Emma and Alibi books really came because I wanted the, the first book I wrote was more of a sort of a classic mystery, traditional mystery. And so I love thrillers. I wanted faster pace. The first one with Emma and Alibi, all that fall actually does involve a kidnapping of a child about halfway through. And it's okay. This is a spoiler because I put the spoiler everywhere, which is that <laughs> yes, you have to wait a hundred pages till the kid gets kidnapped and then the kid will be fine. And I don't want anybody who can't go to sleep at night because they're like, what happens to that three-year-old? Mm-hmm. Lots of other people get killed and die because I write mysteries and thrillers for adults. But the idea is that you can feel safe with that child, even as they're going through danger. So that's sort yeah. of my weird, um, I don't know a lot of other people who approach it that way, but that's how I approach it. So that Emma and Alibi are about um, two you know, smart people with problems who have trust issues, who have family issues and who get to solve interesting, complicated puzzles. And in the end, no children will be harmed. Yeah. And I really, and I think I noticed that on your website too, where you really, you've just been very clear, like no matter what, so that anybody who knows you as an author and who's picking up um, any book of yours, they know that like, you're very just, nope, like, don't worry about it. Like, yeah, they're going to go through a little bit danger, but don't worry. Like, <laughs> that's right. Cause it, for yeah. me, it's necessary. And, and I, you know, I enjoy that they go through that danger. If you think about the childhood stories, like Paddington, the bear, if you've seen those movies or read the books, you know, he's lost, he's come from Peru, he's alone. What's going to happen to Paddington? And then he gets this loving family and he still completely screws up and, you know, everything bad is happening and bad people want to get him, but you know, Paddington's going to be okay. The movie's named Paddington. There's a Paddington too. You know, that's yeah. kind of my brand is that my books are going to be, I think, I hope, and I think the the reviews seem to bear it out. They are suspenseful and they do have you know, bad things happen, but not to kids up to about age 15. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was like 15's the bar there. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere we start to have some problems. Right. Yeah. Like somewhere that, that it's like safe to mess with them a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little bit more is right. So, but anyways, and now I can't imagine um, not writing. I'm 67. And then when I was going through my day job, which was very, you know, meaningful and um, I was doing things for kids, which is what I thought was the most important thing in the world for me. But because I'm single and, you know, my kids have gotten older and I sort of felt like I'm just plodding along towards death. You know, it's like, what? Are, it's just something I was doing that I had been doing for so long mm. and creative. I think if people can be creative in any way, if, if they cook, if they garden, if they travel and keep a journal, if me, they write books. It is a different existence. And I feel like now I want to be here because I want to do these creative things till I'm 100, which seems very unlikely. But I no longer am <laughs> just sort of like, oh, well, I'm over it. You know, I'm not over life because I'm writing. So I like yeah. that. Yeah. And it sounds like you kind of, you're just kind of someone where like your brain, you need to occupy your brain, like, or you just, you <laughs> That's can't. That's certainly true. Yeah. Yeah. Because no, and I, I get that because I, I read a lot, but I would say, I don't know if you know, maybe on average one and a half books a week. So you definitely got me there. And I, I do have a full-time job, but I have two little ones. So it's like, <laughs> and that is how I was for a long time. And that is an amazing and almost, you know, that's like an all consuming thing. It is. It and is. While, yeah. Well, I had that, I definitely felt, you know, meaning in my life, but as they got older and they're fabulous, um, I had to figure out what was next. But, but yeah, yeah, you're doing this, which is creative while your kids are young. And so I think, again, finding some 
something, even with a day job, with other things. Um, For me, if I could tell one thing to young people like you, I would say, you know, just find some creative outlet. I think it's important. It is. And yeah, I can, that's why I think I can recognize this. Cause like, I feel like I do, I am susceptible to, to, to like doom scrolling, just browsing on my phone, whatever. But I'm also, I get bored of that really easily. And I'm like, well, no, I want to go like, I want to either let's go do something. Let's go do an activity or unless it's like super hot out or the weather's crappy, then I'm totally fine with just sitting and watching movies. Like I'm fine with that. The kids are at the age where they're, where they're fine with that too. But it's, yeah, I'm just like, it's, I don't know, maybe it's a restlessness or it's just like wanting to keep the brain going and want to keep entertaining. And I'm, yeah, I love learning and I love, um, I'm also like, I, I, I'm fine being a consumer as well. So like just consuming like all the art and entertainment that's out there too. Um, so kind of like you touched on this a little bit, what, um, draws you to like the thriller genre because your works are mostly like in thriller and suspense, right? Right. I, again, I think because I, um, and I, I, I don't go into detail um, with, you know, things that happen to me, you know, when, but when people have, you know, danger in their own lives, as I did as a very small child, um, living with danger and not ever being able to resolve it, not being able to fix it, um, being helpless, uh, made stories where people uh, found justice and solved problems and general, the quote unquote, good guys uh, conquered all. Although in my books, I'm also very conscious, um, you know, my two of my adult kids have worked in the criminal justice system and trying to improve uh, the aspects of it that really, uh, you know, don't recognize that no one is their worst moment, not mm-hmm. even a killer. And that, you know, that quote unquote killer that, you know, the, the people in my book, I try to give some reasoning for why they're who they are and not going into it deeply that, you know, it's not a, a defense of terrible things that people do, but it's an understanding that even so alibi, for example, in general doesn't see things in a black and white way. Most of the homicides he sees, he thinks are pretty understandable, but they have to deal with them. And there are certain um, types, however, and this isn't more in all that fall, which does have a white supremacist uh, suspects and some, some issues related to, really hate crimes. And, and, you know, I think that, so Alibi sees those as being different when you're telling people they shouldn't exist for, for their identity, for who they are. But for the most part, I, I wanted to be, um, to create problems and then solve them. And I like to read about people who, and I mean, very dangerous life and death problems. Mm -hmm, So I don't, mm -hmm. I don't do well with even really well-written books that are where there are not life and death stakes. So, you know, an, an exploration of just interesting things and people's feelings and family dynamics. And it's not fast enough for me. Also, I think because I read so much and I like short chapters, I like to move yeah. on. I, there are lots of amazing, amazing writers that just aren't for me mm-hmm. uh, because mm-hmm. I need that fast pacing. I need high stakes and I need a resolution that while obviously not perfect because sometimes people we care about die in these books um, or go away or things happen. Um, I nonetheless want for the most part, the idea that, that uh, good triumphs. Yeah, no, I'm with you there. I'm like, it's not necessarily because I've read books um, where, yeah, it's like, it's not to say that they're not a bad writer and I've read books that are by a very talented people, but 
Yeah. It's just, it, it depends like if it just doesn't resonate or if it doesn't like grab you and if it doesn't make you say like, okay, one more chapter, one more chapter, one more chapter. It's, it's really, yeah, it's, it's difficult. Like that's, that's half of the battle. I think it's just really creating such an engaging story and, you know, and it's, it's not easy. It's, it's difficult. And that's why there's editors. That's why there's a process. That's why, that's why even you, when you went in thinking like, oh, this is great. And then they were like, no, it literally is more terrible. <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny because as I said, I don't outline, but what I do once I'm at a second or third draft, something that I'm sort of comfortable with, I do have those big, big like flip chart post-its on my wall and I track and I see each location in what chapters are we down by the river and what chapters are we at Alibi's office so that I think as a reader, if I'm in Alibi's office once and I'm never in Alibi's office again, I, I that feels weird to me. Like, why did you mm. describe his office if you don't come back there at least once? Right. Yeah. And then I do the same thing for characters. So if you meet a character who's not maybe a super major character, but they're somewhat important and I meet them in chapter three and then in chapter 50, they have some important thing. I'm like, who was that? If I'm yeah. <laughs> So I have all these graphs. It does look like a serial killer's den where I just have everything tracked. So my other friends who are writers sort of find this a somewhat of a backward process because a lot of them do that in the beginning. They outline and they have those beats and things that happen. I, you know, just let it evolve and I cut a lot all the time. So the later drafts are usually cutting stuff. But the real um, tightening it up from a reader's perspective, which is primarily what I am, occurs after the third draft, let's say, and is analytical. It is about, Mm. and that's how I want the chapters to flow as well. That's why I'm looking at the locations in each chapter and the characters in each chapter. And because I do multiple points of view, um, Under Broken Sky is six, All It Fall is nine. So for people who don't like a lot of different people, then that's okay for them. If you just want to follow one sleuth and be with them first person, which are a lot of great books are written like that. For me, I like the threads of I'm with the killer, you know, a little bit and I'm with Alibi and what's he thinking about Emma and what's Emma thinking about? I like that stuff. So I, but I watch it and I, and if I see, okay, Alibi has, you know, 12 points of view and Emma has three, Mm -mm, they're, they're, you know, equal characters or Emma's even Mm -hmm. a little more. So Mm -hmm. that's where my um, sort of smoothing of it to, um, for me to make it work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and that is definitely it's kind of like the way that you try to write in the stories how you you try to develop them that reflects in what you're looking for too so it's it's that's that's awesome that you're you know you're very self-aware and you're like no well no this has to this has to be this way because this is I know what's what gets me you know it's like that's I know right. what grabs me yeah yeah and, and I know I love that the last person usually who reads it for me even when it's been approved by my agent and the editor at the publisher will be a reader from a book club or someone that I've, you know, worked with before, but I don't know personally, not a friend. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, give me a last read as a reader of mysteries and thrillers. Did you get lost? Were there things that didn't make sense? You know, what did you see or not see? So I always want that last yeah. look from someone who is, is just taking a reader perspective. Yeah. And it's important in general just to get fresh eyes. Um, well, know, that's you guys, you could get sucked in and then, and then, yeah, from that perspective, not from like the professional perspective, but that perspective, but then that, like that final, like the audience that you're trying to. Exactly. To get. Yeah. Exactly. Um, 
so how was were your experience was your experience uh writing this second book any different than when you wrote the first one so I had a sort of I want to say sort of I had an unusual path to traditional publishing because that first book I did the one that was a traditional mystery I didn't want to try to get an agent or anything like that because remember I just wrote it for myself and then you know spent time trying to make it good Mm -hmm. I went with what's called a hybrid publisher. Their name is Inkshares, but they're really like a Kickstarter. What you do is you put up a chapter and then you have to get 750 people to say they will buy it and give their money. Oh, wow. Those people have given their money. So I didn't have to pay to publish. It's not self-publishing, but it is this weird hybrid where then Inkshares did all the things that a normal publisher would do. And so they, um, you know, promoted it and helped get blurbs and all that kind of stuff. But essentially it was not... I didn't go through a, um, I didn't have to get an agent or a publisher. This newer series, I just started writing all that fun. I'm not sure how I was going to put it out there. I think independent publishing is awesome. And I think people who are successful at it make more money and have mm-hmm. more fun. And so I have no criticisms of it at all. But given my, uh, at that time, I still had my insane um, work life. And I just, I lost that job in the pandemic, actually. Mm-hmm. lost their funding and. So last year, and obviously I was at retirement age anyway, although I, I didn't have any other way to support myself. So it was not very exciting, but <laughs> yeah. still, I still have that job. And I, you know, I just didn't think I could put everything into self-publishing. So I just began drafting the first All That Fall MN Alibi, not knowing what I'd do with it. And it ended up through a connection that I had uh, just being reviewed, not submitted, but reviewed by uh, an editor who had connections with this publisher. Mm-hmm. And so that editor told me there is nothing I don't love about this book. You could take it elsewhere, but if you will bring it to the publisher that I know, um, I would be over the moon that you would bring this oh, book. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So, so I were you like it. screaming, yeah. like jumping and celebrating? <laughs> yes. And also I just, uh, you know, got to skip all that querying and this and that and, you know, competitive And so then I got an agent. So after the publisher then said they were interested based on this editor's recommendation, I got an agent and um, the agent said, well, this is, you know, sort of not the usual way it works, but that's great. And I said, you know, I'd love to have a two book deal instead of one book because that would be nice. And I want to go through it again later. My agent (laughs) is Abby Saul. She's with Lark Word. She's Fabulous, like the most amazing human being, kind, smart, supportive. And so she then became the interface with the publisher, as most authors have if you're traditionally published. And so I stepped back and they did give me a a two book deal that was great and I was very happy with. And so the first book I had written by myself over probably four years and 17 drafts. I mean, I just didn't know what all the fall was going on with it. So that's why I think by the time the editor got him, she's like, there's nothing I don't love about this book. That book was published. The second book, Under a Broken Sky, I was now on contract. So I had a year. And because I was still in this other job and I lost and the place, you know, had to restructure and, and lost my job in the middle of it. I really only had four months to do mm. something that had taken me four years. And I was mm. terrified. I didn't. I mean, I knew I'm an alibi, so it's easier to do a second book in the series because you. Yeah. But I was still terrified. And because I don't outline, who knew if I had a second book? Mm -hmm. So, Abby, again, my agent was super supportive and said, just do it. You can do it. You're right. Great. So, I wrote what I thought 
was good. Again, a little bit of, of a <laughs> deja vu because I, <laughs> I wrote it and I gave it to Abby with two weeks before it was due to the publisher. So again, I'd only, I had a year, they gave me a year, but I really only had four months because of life issues. I turned out this thing in three and a half months and I thought it's great. Of course, I thought that other book was great. I gave it to Abby and she said, well, it's a 90,000 word manuscript. I need you to cut these 30,000 words and put oh, in no. 30,000 words. <laughs> and she said, you know, I had this whole other personal subplot with Emma and having read it, you can see that a whole other Emma has issues thing, given what was already mm. happening to way too much away from the crimes in the thriller. Mm. And so Abby said, it's not a thriller if Emma has 30,000 more words that are Emma's angst, you know, that she says she was nice because she's nice. It's well-written, but trash that. <laughs> and you've got, she was the one who said, I have the voice of the killer, my agent, the voice of the killer was not in there. So I had those notes Add the voice of the killer, cut Emma's subplot, make it into 30,000 words in two weeks. And Man. I thought I could only write early in the morning, like at four in the morning. I was writing 15 hours a day, all day. Long. Oh, wow. And, you know, finished it, gave it back to Abby. And I also had two development letters reading it. And I had that reader read it. And the funny thing is I, I love the book now, but it was um, a, a terrifying. The second time yeah. was a terrifying experience. And I was afraid they'd just reject it. I mean, I just said, I don't understand how something that I did 17 drafts all that fall that I thought was perfect. But now I'm giving them something where I essentially did three drafts. And the last draft was written in two weeks with like an insane... Whatever. That's, that's crazy, especially since crazy. you had to do so, such significant changes to it and still find a way to keep the basic storyline, the basic, like the, the, the engagement, the entertainment intact. And that's, that's so impressive. That must be like your goal oriented, um, you know, goal reaching <laughs> personality that was shining through. It was in, oh, kicking you. into high thank gear. You. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. I don't know. And also Terry Bishop was my editor at the publisher and she's outstanding. So she was also able to take it and, you know, make just the perfect suggestions. And yeah, what I learned from that, it was trial by fire, but I am really happy that it happened because I was sort of babying myself. I can only mm. write first thing in the morning. I'm not creative afternoon. I da, da, da. I can't do more than you have to. You can write 30,000 good words in two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> now I feel like I want to write at least a book a year. I'm starting a new series that I'm very excited about. Nice. So Emma and Alibi are these two books for now. I might do two more books later. Okay. But again, I have to kind of follow what I'm interested in. Yeah. And uh, the, the new series that I'm working on um, will probably be fewer points of view. I seem to be narrowing it down each time. So nine to six, this one might be three or four. Yeah. And is San Francisco instead of Sacramento based. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. That's cool. Um, so kind of like going along with like the writing and you did kind of touch when you went on like your background. So like when you're developing um, the story or just like the setting, because a lot of stories like the town and the um, environment can act as like a background character, like, or at least that's kind of how sometimes I see it. Like it's very important. And that's right. so, yeah. And so like how, because of <laughs> your professional background, was there any like other like research involved in terms besides like just your own experience or what was in your brain, you know, with like the government makeup and the, I, you know, how 
the chain of command works because Emma's team and you know, there's, there's people who she's kind of like, what? Okay. And then there's other people who she's like, she's like treading lightly. And then, and then there's other people telling her like, well, no, you have, so, you know, you got to play nice with these certain people because they're going to, it's going to pay off later type of thing. And so, and it's, yeah. And it's all like the politics of it. Right. And so how did, was it a lot of like what was already in your brain or your experiences, or did you have to do any additional research while developing all those um, little interactions and stuff like that? So I think because I'm older and so I have had a long work life that's been in nonprofits and, you know, with the legislature that mm-hmm. all of that, that sort of flowed through um, the setting for the commission for Emma's work and uh, you know, the things that were happening in Sacramento, all of that is from firsthand experience. And I didn't really have to research that, but I do a lot of research about anything that I don't know about. Mm. And so if I want to say that there were, you know, certain birds um, down by the river or trees, (laughs) or, you know, I am online looking at videos of of that area of the river and listening to the bird songs. And, you know, so I do a lot of sort of sensory, I think because in that first book, I only had people sing things. I do a lot with listening to sounds, accents, for example. So this book has someone who's um, from Amsterdam or from Holland. And so her Dutch accent sort of getting a sense of that myself so that I could listen to how Alibi would hear it. Yeah. And, you know, so a lot of um, the details that are not political and not policy related, I research the um, kind of the old town setting in terms of the cobblestone streets and things like that in Sacramento. So, but for me, Sacramento was an important place to do this also because um, right now I'm in DC and the, you know, federal government really does have just a war between the two parties, between Republicans and Democrats. Yeah. And my experience in California, in part because all of the branches are usually, not always, there have been Republican governors for sure. Ronald Reagan was one of them. Um, but the three houses are dominated by Democrats. So they can do a lot of things on their own without fighting, but they need Republicans for things like the budget and certain votes where they need to have enough votes and also when yeah. the Democrats fight, fight with themselves. So I wanted to have politics, like you said, as kind of a character in the setting but not have it be about good guys or bad guys, Republicans mm-hmm. or Democrats. I was not interested in that. So I wanted to have the, the chair of the Republican caucus is a good guy in this book. Um, he's helpful uh, on something that they need help on. Uh, you know, I think that that's, or maybe that was even in all that fall, he was more of a character in that, but he's in this as well. So I, yeah, I think um, the setting was important to me, Sacramento. The reason I'm now going a little bit away from that is I feel like in these two books, I really did that. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. That fall and Under a Broken Sky. And if I were a reader, I would feel like, wow, I've learned a lot about Sacramento and the process <laughs> and nonprofits. And, but if I want to keep it real, unless I want to have, you know, Emma now stumble into a popcorn shop and find a body, you know, <laughs> I, if I want to keep it focused, I'm at least going to take a break. I do have two ideas for books three and four, but I, that's why I'm going to go to San Francisco, which is where my family is. My parents were 94 and 92 live on their own in San Francisco. And my um, older son is an assembly member in Sacramento, a California legislator, which he became after I wrote 
the book. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that's really weird because I'm writing about yeah. certain kids is work, but it wasn't his work at the time. So he's that's now a, a legislator, but he lives in San Francisco, he represents San Francisco. So that's why I feel very comfortable doing a San Francisco story yeah. um, since my family's there. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes sense to a lot of, a lot of authors do that where they just, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's like what they immerse themselves is what they're familiar with. That's what makes them, uh, you know, familiar territory for them. And so it's easy to, to, to draw that out and to get descriptive and to really, you know, not spend too much time having to think about that because it's our, it's just like, it's a little bit more natural. Right. Um, exactly. I like, I couldn't do, I love Tracy Clark is one of my favorite authors of all time. I know you've interviewed her. I have. I, I yeah, listened she's great. to your interview of her. Yeah, oh, good. <laughs> listen to it. Um, but she's fabulous, but you know, she does a Chicago based series. Yep. I, for me to write Chicago, I would have to probably go there for three months. And I visit there every year because my nonprofit had its annual meeting there. So mm-hmm. I feel like I a little bit know Chicago and the Green River on, you know, um, St. Patrick's Day, but not to write the nitty gritty as you pointed yeah. out. She does. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah I think it, it kind of gives you a leg up if the setting is something you know. Definitely. And it, it, yeah, just reading her descriptions, I remember telling her like, oh yeah, I can tell you're from here. <laughs> just remember describing the, you know, cause one of the more recent books is what it's set in the winter. And I'm just like, oh yeah. Like <laughs> you are? You're in Chicago. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, suburb, but yeah, that's the region that I'm in. And so that's why I was like really familiar with, um, her descriptions and, and well, that's right. I, I yeah. listened to it a while ago. I forgot about that. No, that's okay. why. <laughs> yeah. But I also like reading about stories that are set in different regions and um, in the U S like whether it's uh, the South or, you know, the Pacific Northwest and California and all that. So it's part of the experience. It's part of like, Oh, you, you know, if you're reading, you get to like travel and live other lives essentially. And um, you know, in your brain and your head as you're imagining it. And, you know, I enjoy that too. Um, so I do want to like touch on Emma and Kate's friendship. I really liked their friendship. I think it was like really important, obviously to Emma um, and her well being because she, her family life is very complicated or at least, you know, it there's a story there. Yes, <laughs> and, leave that out. That is a spoiler. Yeah, uh-huh. and, yeah, and so um, and I do. I noticed that a lot of mystery thrillers where we're pro- following a point of view that's kind of investigating. A lot of um, the people close to them are like their partners, either professional partners, like investigative partners, or like their intimate partners. And so I thought this was really unique in having her uh, such an important relationship be her like best friend essentially. And then, um, you know, her, her nephew, her nephew, um, you know, friend's son. Yeah. And so how did, um, I want to kind of like explore that and like why that was important to you to kind of integrate that and make that part of her character. Yeah. I, you know, I agree with you. I think most often there's either a romantic, you know, partner who then helps them do stuff or, there's their partner, you know, at the police department or wherever they are. Mm-hmm. And I think the truth is for many of us. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if it's more, I don't want to be to, you know, be gender biased about this. This may be true for men as well, but I at least know that there are many women who um, and the most consistent person or people in our lives have been other women who don't happen to be family members. Yeah. So I have a very dear friend uh, named Kathy, who I met in graduate school when I was a little bit older. I think I'm 10 years older than she is. So I was probably 
closer to 35 and she was 25 or something like that. But um, we became close then. And over the years, we've gone in and out of, um, you know, being very active in one another's lives because our lives yeah. are in different paths. And yet, just like in the book for Emma, that's a person where the level of trust that I have um, is greater than any man that I've been in a relationship yeah. with um, <laughs> or, you know, any work colleague. I do have one cousin. So I have a family member, Lori, who I'm, you know, also extremely close to and is almost like a sister. But um, you know, I thought exploring how friends become family, uh, to us. And also, you know, I've often sort of in, in all of my books, the women, the main woman character does not have children. And because I raised children for, you know, two generations of them right. when I was 24, <laughs> had two. And then when they were 16 and 15, I had the third one, you know, it's just like, I, I wanted to kind of explore what life would be like as a woman without children, because I think it can be fabulous. I think both yeah. can be fabulous. But I also thought that at least the, the women I know who don't have children, many of them have been become important the way Emma is in Luke's life because they offer something different than the parents. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think those are just realities that we might be seeing more and more as families change in their dynamics. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so that's an important that's important to me in my stories. I think similar to the no harm to children would be friends who become family is likely to be a theme in all my books. Yeah. And it's a little more significant, I think too, because it's like, they're the family you choose essentially. It's not like you're forced to know these people. (laughs) Also trust is a big um, issue and especially in thrillers and suspense stories, because you often have an unreliable narrator and actually the person you trust is really the killer kind of thing, going back all the way to Agatha Christie. So yeah. who you trust in stories, I place Emma's you know, friend, Kate, I don't think we ever question in the book that she's trustworthy. Yeah. And in All That Fall, Kate also has a significant role. And so there are um, you know issues there as well. So yeah, I... Yeah. Um, I think for me, uh, the really the fun of the Emma and Alibi series, it would be much less um, sort of fulsome or robust if, if Kate weren't also there with Luke. That's something yeah. really cool. I, I love teenagers. I think they're underrated in our society. I think they're, you know, not, they're treated both as children uh, when they're not, but they're yeah. also great as adults when they don't yet have executive functioning. Um, oh my gosh. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's one thing I learned. I was like, I want to try to remind myself, like if my, when my boys, they're 19 or 20 months and, and about to be five. So I'm like trying to just remember that. Like, I know it's, and I remember from my own, my own experience as a teenager, I think, you know, cause me and my dad, obviously we clashed. <laughs> it's like, I think that's just that's a rite of, pa- rite of, pa- rite of passage. I, you know, right. it happens. Um, but yeah. And it's just, you know, I, I kind of think about that and think like, yeah, I remember that. And even now it's like their brains are developing. They are understanding certain concepts, but yeah, like when they get older and there's their, their peers are the only thing that matters. And it's like, if any, something goes wrong, it has a potential to be like the worst thing in the world. And so it's, yeah. And I just have to remind myself, like at the end of the day, I don't interact with teachers, but I have, um, you know, I, my nieces, I, I was, uh, I became an aunt when I turned 12. And so there was wow. that, yeah. Cause my right. sister is less significantly older than I am. And so, so yeah, it's kind of like, it's interesting to kind of also see it from that perspective too, but even as like getting older and then seeing my nieces, like 
become teenagers and now they're like adults, like they're um, 19 and, and well, 18 and 22 now. And so I'm like, oh my goodness, like, well, you know, and it, it's even then still like, I still want to give them the benefit of the doubt. So I, I really, li- I really like that you said that you're like, no, I, I like teenagers, like I like them because it's, I and they're, they're, they're deserving of that. Like, you know, not like affection per se, but that like amicable, amicable, like affection, like in a sense, you know, And even I I love that you're saying that. And I think that one of the most important things, there's a lot of pressure as your kids become preteens and teens to um, sort of agree with whether it's the teacher or the coach or the whoever or the other parents, you know, the other kid's parent that, you know, your kid is bad in some way. And so with all three of my kids, I would keep the mantra to myself that, I'm always in their corner, like in a fight, the person who cleans them up and helps them go back out. It doesn't mean I don't criticize a behavior. That yeah, have, right? yeah. I don't say you shouldn't have done that. And let's talk about it. But you are a good person. And you right. surprised how hard it is to hold on to that when people around you, especially unfortunately in our culture for boys. So there are gender issues around um, sort of behavior for boys. And the other thing from, you know, I did do this. Um, I'm not licensed in any way as a therapist, but because I did do this graduate work in psychology, one of the most interesting things to me is that self-esteem in general is cross-gender, meaning boys get most of their self-esteem from how their mother um, talks about them and says who they are, even though they might be really close to their dads and have similar interests and all that kind of stuff. And with girls, if the dad doesn't act like the girl is a really good person, that's more damaging than the mom on average. There are differences in every family. But so your role, the fact that you're examining this so young with your sons is so critically important because the way that you represent them to the world and let them know that you feel about them is Mm -hmm. the most important thing in their life. I, I, you know, I appreciate that too. And that makes so much sense now that I think of it because kind of go on that, like off of your terminology, I felt like my mom was always in my corner, but my dad was, I think like we're very much alike too. So that just causes, you know, a lot tension, not tension, but just like butting heads in general. But now, you know, obviously things are fine now because I'm not like 18 anymore, <laughs> 16 anymore, <laughs> and I have kids of my own and stuff. But um, yeah, and that's one thing I'm always trying to be conscious about with my kids because it's like, I mean, I kind of want like you got to sound like a Larkin record player with them. It's like I try you to do. tell them yes, like I understand. Yeah. Like I under I have I try so hard to have so much patience. So at the end of the day, I'm like, you know what? I understand this is frustrating, but you can't like you got to find a better. You can't be lashing out like this. Like you can't. You don't need to throw. You don't need to express that this way. Like I understand. I know. Like it's you know. And I think that's like I feel like and that's half repetitive. the battle. You're right. But I think sometimes parents feel. Um, angry if they feel like, well, I, they're, they're not listening to me and they, you know, they're ignoring what I've said because they have to say it over and over again, but they're just yeah. say it over and over again when they're five, you have to repeat yourself when they're 15. Yeah. The repetition is, is, um, keeps children safe because it lets them know that you can be consistent in the yeah. things that they're acting out. Yeah. And that's, so that's, that's really the one thing important. I, that's the one thing I keep hearing is like, like, He's okay. Like, it's okay. If you're strict, just be consistent and get, still give them love. <laughs> you can that's right. You have to be, that's right. And you have to be consistent. That's right. And, and if you do ever, I don't know if we sent you all that fall, I'm happy to send it to you if you don't have it. But if you, the second half of that book is really about a 15 year old, um, Luke, and it's really, um, 
I tried to present him in a, in a um, really positive light, even though he's very flawed. And because you have two sons, I, you know, again, I'm happy to send you that if you don't have it. Cause I, I um, did actually download the audiobook just because I really enjoy oh, this one. Great. So, I mean, but I'll, you know, whatever you want to do, I'll, I'll take, <laughs> I'm always, I'm, I'm, I'm a I dork. Sh- so <laughs> and this is against my own, um, I shouldn't, say this, but I will, because I'm not good at self-editing. The audio book for all that fall, the, first of all, it's the same reader who reads on near, uh, actor and Caitlin Davis is award-winning and fabulous. That said, all that fall, nine points of view on audiobook. Oh, um, have, and she point. does all the voices perfectly, but it is not the kind of audiobook you can just be taking a walk and not rewind and try to figure out where you were. Okay. No, that's you know, a good so, point. And, and people <laughs> love it because she's amazing. But that particular book may be easier to uh, read and flip back. Yeah. In, in Under Broken Sky, I can't wait to. I haven't been able to hear the audiobook. I am just salivating waiting to get it because Caitlin Davis is so great. Yeah. And I think this book, which you've read, is made for audiobook. Like, I nice. love the different parts. All that fall um, is the challenge. Okay. No, that's good. To, that's good to know. So I'll, I'll think twice about that. <laughs> but I can just send you the book. And for people who love audiobooks, they won't mind because all the different point of views are used to it and, you know, the different voices, but yeah. if you don't really listen to everything. On, and again, it got great reviews on audiobooks. So I may be an outlier about how I feel about it, but I think it is pretty complicated. Yeah. If you don't mind, I might, cause I am, I feel like I, I do better. I, um, what's that uh, reading comprehension is uh visual i think i am better visually than auditory so um that's a th- I'm, I'm glad you gave me you know that insight it's just, into I mean, it's, it. it's easy for me to do i didn't know if you've ever um uh heard of the book a gentleman in moscow it's um i think so i to remember the guy's name that is the best audiobook in the world. So if you're looking for an audiobook, I think I have listened to it 12 times and it's sort of a place in Russia, but it is a, in a way it's a thriller, but it's mostly um, just an extraordinarily well-written and well-read and entertaining. A gentleman in Moscow, I think is the um, name. So anybody looking for an audiobook, I think it's the best audiobook in the world. I also think Tracy Clark's, um, her narrator is fabulous. She is. It seemed like, yeah, it seemed very fitting. Like I first somehow like just the pitch and the tone and the voice, it matched how I maybe imagine that person would, how cast would sound. And again, I think Caitlin Davies does that for me. But as I said, unless you're an audiobook aficionado, Broken Sky is best. With multiple points of view, yeah. for sure, that can that can uh, throw a wrench into things. Um, so, just a couple more questions before we wrap up. I know, I know, we zipped through that hour. This has been amazing. <laughs> um, I like. I I always ask everybody this question because um, I just I love learning the answers. I think they're fascinating. So, what were the most challenging parts to write, and then what were like the most enjoyable parts to write? Um, because the killer was dropped in as a point of view after the book was finished, that was yeah. by far the most challenging because I needed to get that person's persona and keep it short and, and crisp. And I love the way it worked out, but that was by far the most challenging. The most enjoyable scenes for me are with Kate and Emma, even when they're just at the coffee shop and they're talking about their matching watches or she's thinking about them and, you know, the BFF for everything. And so yeah. I think that, um, as you said, that's not done as much. And I really felt like I was there, you know, with them. Um, so that was probably the most fun. Yeah, no, that's great. And I, I think I could tell um, in some of those scenes, I could tell that you 
you really like those were held a little bit more special (laughs) for you yeah Yeah. um so what advice would you give to emma what advice would you give to alibi wow those are good questions so let me think for a moment (laughs) i i think that emma is growing in a way that is appropriate meaning i think that she uh probably doesn't require advice from me um (laughs) Other than uh, she's bold in her investigative life and somewhat timid in her relationship life, although she steps over that for a moment, as you know, in this book. But in general, she um, doesn't take risks to expand her circle beyond Kate and um, Luke. And so I would advise her to recognize that uh, she's now 33 or something in the book that maybe it's time to take a few more risks in relationships, even if she's made mistakes in the past. Uh, I think for Alibi, you know, he, he took a promotion that he wasn't sure whether he would like, and it's put him in a more administrative position and it's taken mm. him out of the field. He keeps finding ways to be back in the field, but he's <laughs> probably not cut out to be head of major crimes. He doesn't seem, you know, he seems to be resisting parts of his job. And so I would advise him to probably, you know, open his own private investigation firm and really get out there and and help people a lot more than he can do as a police officer. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of noticed that about him, too, with his interactions with her, you know, one of the characters, he notices her and he it it. he can't let it go almost like he's, he's kind of pushing a little bit gently and, and, but it, it really, that I feel like what that one of those scenes like really kind of showed, it gave the readers like more, more of an like insight as to who, who he is. And so that's, yeah. that he was one of function always as a cop and, <laughs> and he is stepping over. Like you say, he's kind of can't like things go. And if he were a PI, he probably could step over them more. Yeah, yeah, because which did not, by the way, occur to me until you asked this question. <laughs> planning for him to be a PI, but I there we go. That could work for him. So if that mm-hmm. happens, I will have to put you in my acknowledgement. Oh, okay, <laughs> just I a little like oh, yeah, you know. <laughs> that came up in this interview. Yeah, in this interview, it did. Very- there you go. You never know. Exactly. Um, oh, you kind of touched on this before. Uh, future projects. What are you working on? Anything you could talk about? Yeah. So I am working on this San Francisco base. Again, it's another young woman who doesn't have children because those are stories I want to explore, although very different from um, Emma. This young woman um, is has a rich imagination when she's a child, which is the opposite of me, is always mm-hmm. imagining different things. And we kind of start with her as a child. But as she gets older, some terrible things happen. And she then decides to be um, sort of very analytical to not look into that side of her head. Uh, but she is uh, investigating and trying to prove the innocence of someone close to her. And it's a dual timeline. So there's also a crime that occurred back in 1850 with a great, 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 great grandmother that is going to track sort of into what's happening here. So for me, it's so much fun. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see if, uh, you know, I mean, first I finished writing it and my agent is already enthusiastic, but then we have to see if a publisher. Yeah, right. The dual dual um, yeah. timelines are they're always fun, and I imagine they're fun to write too. Maybe just a little little bit more concentration on keeping track and everything, though. <laughs> and also, I can't have as many points of view if I'm going to have yeah. two timelines. <laughs> so that's how my complexity, as you said, I have sort of a my um, 
brain kind of has to go in a lot of different directions and that's not always a good thing. So I think this is going to help contain that with the two timelines. That is really, I'm really excited about it. And I don't know, you know, if it'll ever be available, but you and I will know. There we go. <laughs> that's the first time I've told anyone um, okay. publicly about it. Cause usually it's not a great idea to talk about stuff you're writing before it's done. Um, sure. Not because it's a secret, but because Sometimes then you don't want to write it anymore, but I've written enough of it that okay. I'm totally <laughs> in it. So I'm excited there. about it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a way to challenge yourself too. You know, you got to keep leveling up, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's what this is going to do. And I, I'm hopeful. So Chris Calvin, Under a Broken Sky is number two. All That Fall is number one. And they're both available now. Um, Chris Calvin, thank you so much. This was such an enjoyable conversation. Very talented. I was engaged. I'm a sucker for the genre anyway, but you did such a good job and I'm, I'm going to keep an eye out for, for whatever you got going on in the future. I appreciate it. And I will keep in touch with you and uh, let you know what I'm doing since I broke the news here. Yeah. I, to, I talk with you first. If, if that book oh, sure. Yeah. I, so I appreciate that. Closing the loop. But thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it as well. And there you have it. That was Chris Calvin talking about Under a Broken Sky, the um, second installment following All That Fall. Both books are available now. You can read my book review on thenerdcantina.com. And of course, as always, for the Nerd Cantina Show podcast, you know, rate, review, subscribe. It really helps us out. And if you want to look at some other books that I've read or other authors that I've interviewed, you know, be sure to just keep an eye out by following us on Twitter and Instagram and feel free to also join the Facebook group. As always, thanks so much for listening.